as you worship. The Psalms are this amazing treasure trove of prayers. It's this book right in the middle of the Bible that's full of these song lyrics and these amazing lines that have resonated with people for millennia, deeply speaking to our hearts. For instance, one psalm says, cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. I love this image of taking my burden and my cares and throwing them on to my Savior because he cares for you. Another line says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Another classic, Psalm 23, you've probably heard this line, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What a line. Or again, David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Not if, I I never experience fear, but when fear comes, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I put my trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It makes me wonder, reading all these psalms, taking in these classic resonating lines, how do you learn to say these kinds of things? Obviously not just how do you learn to memorize them or say these as nice phrases, but how do you mean these kinds of lines from your heart? How do you say this with intent from your own spirit? And clearly this doesn't happen because you live a nice, easy, comfortable life. You don't learn to say these things because you've never experienced a storm before. In order to say something clearly like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that requires walking through some dark valleys, no? You have to experience difficulty and find that God is with you even there. That's what leads you to write something like Psalm 23. So this kind of profound peace and deep trust is formed in enduring moments of desperation and finding God's presence is enough for you. I need that news. Again, this kind of profound peace and deep trust is formed in our hearts by enduring moments of desperation, moments of desperation, and finding God's presence is with you and enough for you. So again, we have to go through times of testing. We need this. We need these incredibly dark valleys where we come to the end of ourselves, where we're at the end of our rope and we find, I cannot rescue myself. And I'm at my illusion of self-control and having everything under my power is completely ruined. I can't take care of myself and I need to look beyond myself for another to rescue me. That's what these dark, desperate seasons do to us. And they show us that trust is formed by enduring these moments of darkness. That's why I love the life of David. So powerful. David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms that we have. And his writing is just full of passion and honesty. This kind of 
open bluntness towards God of his desire and his disappointment and his desperation. He feels so free in the presence of God to share his heart, his disappointment again, and his longing to know God. And how did David arrive at this place with such a vibrant relationship with God? How did he get there? Guarantee you it wasn't because things were easy again. It's because David, hear me, was put in a furnace. David was put in severe trials and difficulties. And it was in that place that his heart learned how to trust God. And we've, we've been in a series, this is about seven weeks, nearly two months ago, we were in a series on 1 Samuel. And this is about the rise of kingship in Israel. So let me do a brief recap if you need this. But it started out with God raising up a prophet, this great prophet named Samuel, to lead his people. But God's people reject God as their king and their leader, and they ask for someone else to be their king, like all the other nations have a king. So God gives them a king named Saul. But Saul, he's obsessed with his own reputation and his own power. He's a terrible leader. So God anoints a new king named David. But what's, what's going to happen to David? We just see that God's favor is on his life, but what kind of person is he going to become? You see, God is not interested in raising up another Saul that's going to be obsessed with his own name. Instead, he wants David to be a man fully after his own heart. So after declaring him to be king one day, he sets him into this hard, hard season. And that's what we're about to explore for these next several weeks. The furnace that David is put into, that you and I are put into, is God is shaping us. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you open up with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapters 21 and 22. And this is the season, a moment today, where David learns to say that line I said here. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. This psalm that David writes, we're going to see, is from this season of these two chapters. How did he learn to say this? I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. I'll simply be telling the story, however, and drawing out some insights as we go. Starts here in chapter 21, verse 1, says that David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Now, what's going on here? This is a little strange. Why is David going to Nob? What's going on in the story? Again, bear with me. So just share a little recap. We know that the king is Saul, and he is afraid and jealous of David because David is finding success in whatever he does because of God's kindness to him. So whether it's a military campaign, David finds success, and all the other commanders love him. And even Saul's own daughter falls in love with David, and they get married. So David is now a part of the royal family, success and favor. Again, all the people in the land love David. He's captured the hearts of the whole country. Success after success after success. And because of this, Saul is filled with more and more fear and jealousy of David. To the point that he tries to kill him seven different times. Saul's out of control in his eagerness to kill David. 
And even though David is an entirely faithful servant to Saul, he's forced to flee for his life. And if you remember, first of all, he runs to the great prophet Samuel, but even there, Saul pursues him. Then he runs to his best friend, Jonathan, Saul's son, but even then, Saul threatens to kill his own son. He's so angry with David. So now, for the third time, we see David fleeing to someone else, this time to Ahimelech the priest. It seems that Ahimelech knows something is wrong because it says that when he sees David coming, he's trembling. Ahimelech begins to tremble and he asks David, why are you alone? (laughs) What are you doing here without all of your men? And interestingly, David tells a lie. He says, I'm, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. And he's told me I can't tell anybody about it. And all the men that I'm usually with, I've told them to meet me in a certain location later. I love how these stories are built because we're not immediately given an aside or an explanation about why David lies. It doesn't condemn or condone the behavior right away. Rather, through the story, it will reveal the wisdom or folly of this decision by David. But can maybe just say this one part. Perhaps David is saying this because he's trying to protect Ahimelech. He knows that when he went to Jonathan, Saul was willing to nearly kill his own son. So what would he do to Ahimelech if he helps David? So maybe he's trying to keep him in the dark to protect him. We're not sure, but we're going to see the end result of this decision. And he tells Ahimelech that he's hungry and he asks for some bread. And the priest says, I don't have any bread to give you except the consecrated bread. I love this. This is the most special, sacred bread in all of Israel. And 12 loaves, two stacks of six, would have been made every week, fresh, every week by the priests to put in the tabernacle where God's presence dwelled among his people, where everyone would come to worship and commune with God. And this bread was put in God's presence every week. And unlike other religions that often make food offerings to their gods as if they were feeding their gods. This is not what the Israelites were doing. This bread is not a symbol that God needs food. Rather, it's a symbol that God's presence is food for us. That God's presence nourishes us like bread for our bodies, which is why it was called the bread of his presence. So the priests would make this every week, and they'd replace the old bread with new, fresh bread because we are meant to live continually off the presence of God. He's meant to be our nourishment. And so Ahimelech has some of this leftover bread that's only meant to be eaten by priests because it's so special. But he makes a bold exception here and gives this bread, this consecrated bread of the presence to David, a non-priest, someone who's not supposed to have it. I think this is powerful. This is amazing that God, in his kindness, leads David here. And in this moment of descent into deeper and deeper desperation, God starts by giving a reminder to David that he must live off of his presence. 
that this whole journey into a darker and darker place starts with David eating the bread of God's presence. Do you see God's kindness here? But God's kindness is not that he gives David an exemption. You don't have to go into this hard season. He doesn't take him on a detour around these hard moments. Hear me, he, he doesn't even give David clear answers about what's happening. He doesn't give David a timeline. Hey, hey you'll be in this really difficult season for about six months, and then it's going to get better. Nothing. Just hardness and confusion. What he does give David is a reminder that you must live off my presence. I will be your nourishment, David. I'm not giving you a timeline. I'm not giving you answers. I'm giving you myself. That's God's kindness to David. Can you see how this clearly connects for us? I know if you're anything like me, we are in hard moments where we feel confused or let down by God and have no idea what's happening. And in these hard, desperate times, the desperate times, what you most need is not answers. You do not need a timeline of when this is going to end. That might be helpful, we think, but God knows what we most need is to feed off of his presence, to be with him, and to commune with him. Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. You're what I most need. And praise God. David is not given God's presence because he's awesome and perfect. You remember this moment? He has just lied to Ahimelech. He is imperfect, probably making excuses. But it's to the imperfect that God is seeking out in his faithfulness. It's to the broken like David that God makes himself available because he's full of grace, not because we're full of goodness. So God is offering, yes, to you and to me, all of us here in our brokenness. I want to sustain you with my presence. Don't run after other refuges. Come to me. I will be more than enough for you. So again, if you're in a hard season right now, you need that truth. It is God's presence that is meant to nourish you right now. Love, this isn't the only gift that David has given here. Not just this physical reminder of God's presence with him via bread, but also he asks Ahimelech if he has any weapons. Now, Ahimelech, he's a priest. They don't have weapons, but he just so happens to have the sword that used to belong to Goliath that David had killed previously. You remember that story? David and Goliath, a couple of people heard that. David kills Goliath, takes his sword, and now Ahimelech has it. And the sanctuary of God, apparently, is a gift that David gave. And he gives it to David because, I mean, who would the sword belong to, if anybody, but David? So get this, David has this massive, sharp, incredible reminder of God's faithfulness in his hand now. As he's about to go, he's given this bread of God's presence and also in hand this sword that he knows he only has because God has intervened for him before against a giant, and he only had five stones and a sling. God intervened before. So in his desperation, he's now carrying with him this massive reminder of God's faithfulness. And I would encourage you in the same way. As you are feeling overwhelmed, 
take in hand reminders of God's goodness to you. How critical this will be because we get deceived. God's never been with me. I'm totally alone. He doesn't care about my life. I need to figure out solutions on my own. But if we'd hit the pause button and say, I'm going to take in hand. Yes, I remember I have been in places like this before. And you did not fail me, but you grew me and drew me closer to yourself. You made me more like you. You've been faithful to me before. I will not give up. I will seek your face. You are with me, Jesus. So he begins with the bread of God's presence, this reminder of God's faithfulness. It seems like an entirely successful pit stop for David. This is incredible. Nothing's gone wrong here. Complete success. But we hear this one line in verse 7 that should give us pause. It's going to come back around. It says that now one of Saul's servants was there at Nob that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. The story doesn't immediately elaborate. just gives us this detail to put us on edge a little bit. Someone has seen David here. Again, we see David's increasing desperation. He has this bread, this sword. But next he flees to get this, the city of Gath of the Philistines. Now this is hands down the craziest place that David could go. It shows his entire desperation because first of all, The Israelites have been in a decades-long war with the Philistines. And Gath is one of their chief cities. And this is where David's going. David, who has a song about him saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And by tens of thousands, that means tens of thousands of Philistines. And now he's going to their country. Secondly, this is crazy, because as you just heard, he's taking Goliath's sword with him. And where do you think Goliath was from? Gath in Philistia. That's his hometown. So David is walking into Gath with the sword of their hometown hero. The hometown hero that he killed and cut off his head with his own sword. That's what David is walking into town with. Not exactly a way to win friends, right? Not exactly to say, like, host me. Would you welcome me? I have Goliath's sword that I killed him with, right? easily the worst place for David to go. But this is how desperate he is. It seems that the Philistines are really quick to pick up on who David is. They say, isn't this David? An interesting line, they say, the king of the land. That's how prominent David was. And they also remember that catchy lyric about David killing his tens of thousands. And it says in the text that he's in their presence or in their hand, meaning likely that David was not just with them, but he was also under arrest by the Philistines. So he quickly realizes what a massive mistake that he's made. He's in the hands of his enemies. So David begins to act insane. He begins to drool and let saliva run down his beard, and he starts to make scratches on the walls and on the gate to show that he's insane. It seems that David is a better actor than he was a liar because when he comes into the presence of King Akish of Gath, the king believes this acting. 
in this wonderful jest towards his own counselors, King Akish says, am I short of madmen that you bring this fellow here into my presence to go on like this in front of me? So he believes he truly is insane and he lets David go. He has a very narrow escape. So where to next for David? He goes back into Israel, and it says that he hides in a cave of Adullam, a cave called Adullam. This is interesting, because we know in this southern area of Israel, even today, there's this whole series of caves that are scattered throughout the landscape. There's actually a national park in Israel today because of all these caves, and this is one of them. We don't know exactly which one was the cave of Adullam, but you can see these are very large caves that would have been a perfect place for David to hide out and move from spot to spot. We find that these are helpfully large because there's 400 men that come and join David here in these caves, that learn of his whereabouts and join him. This is not exactly the A-team that joins David. Hear what it says in verse 2 of chapter 22. It says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commanders. Not exactly the cream of the crop, right? He's got all the grumblers and all the gamblers that come and find him, and that's his starting group for David. All those that are already stuck in difficult dis- situations and discontent, they make their way to David. And every time I read this story, it just sticks out to me that this reminds me of someone. That those who are disgruntled and in difficulty find their way to someone. That it reminds me of the gospel. And doesn't this stand out as Jesus? That where David just accepts those who are desperate and in difficulty, Jesus is seeking them out. Jesus seeks out those who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus calls for the sick to come to him. He calls for the sinners to come near. So far more than David just accepting, Jesus is on the lookout to bring the misfits to himself. Does anyone need to amen that one? I feel that. Jesus seeks out the misfits and the sinners and says, be with me, be with me me. So David here is a picture of our coming king and what he will ultimately one day be. Even as this cave seems to work for these 400 men, we also hear that David's family come and join him, his father and his mother. And this is not the best place for his family to hide. So what is David going to do? Where can he take them? He, He can hardly hide and take care of himself. What will he do with his older father and mother? Incredibly, he takes them to the king of Moab. This is another country outside of Israel. And the king of Moab is willing to take them in. Why? Why would he possibly do this for David? It's interesting that it seems here that God has been planning and looking for this moment for generations. That God knew and had set this up for David's looking over his life. How so? We know that David's great-grandmother was from Moab, and she was a refugee that had to flee the country. Her husband had died, and she went back with her mother-in-law named Naomi, who was from Israel, back to that land. 
And God showed his kindness, not just to this Ruth, David's great-grandmother, but he shows his love for all the nations by taking care of Ruth. He gives her a husband, provides for Naomi and Ruth, and she even has a son who was David's grandfather. So David has Moab connections that now generations later is such a help to him. Do you see how God is watching over David? It may seem small and minuscule and insignificant, but God is showing how he is watching over David's life. From allowing him to escape from the Philistines to providing him a place to hide, men to come and be with him, his family a safe place to stay again and again. God is providing for David, even in these small details, in the margins, God is faithful. And we often feel like we wonder, where is God? Why isn't his work in my life more obvious? Why isn't he answering these questions or setting things out more clearly for me? Where is God and when is he going to show up? And we need this reminder that often God's work is not with fanfare and fireworks. Hear me. It's often in the small details that we might overlook. God's work and his faithfulness is in the margins. So if you're feeling forgotten, God, where are you? Do you see my life at all? Are you concerned for me? That David had been anointed king, and now he's hiding in caves. Doesn't mean God has forgotten him. He is taking care of him and watching over David's life, but his work is in the details. So again, for you, do not be discouraged, but have eyes to see, God, where are you working? It might not be with obvious fireworks, but I know you are present with me here. So don't overlook the small, minuscule things in your life. And take them in as a reminder of God's faithfulness to you. You have not forgotten me. You are with me. I will appreciate and praise you for this work in the margins that you've done. Hold on. See his faithfulness to you. God was watching over David. And he's watching over you. That's why David would write, When my spirit is faint, you, O Lord, are watching over me. How did he see that? In the details, in the margins. We could wrap up here, but there's one more thread that I want to finish. It's a darker thread in this story where we still see God's provision, even in something that's pretty overwhelming and evil. If you remember that moment where Doeg the Edomite saw David and Ahimelech, that's about to come back around. We know David is in Judah, but the king Saul, he is in Gibeah, sitting underneath his tamarisk tree, and he's having a royal whining session. Saul is saying to all the men of his tribe, Benjamin, he's saying, I've given you vineyards and fields. I've made you commanders of hundreds and thousands, yet all of you are conspiring against me with this David, the son of Jesse. So even though the facts are so clearly the other way, Saul thinks there's a conspiracy against him. He has a conspiracy mindset. Again, he's willing to believe things that fit his preferences rather than what fits the facts. Or, or maybe more clearly, Saul in his fear and in his jealousy has become locked in irrational thinking where he's only willing to accept what already fits his fear, not what fits the facts. Can I say that again? 
He's become irrational in his fear, so he now only believes what fits his fear, not what fits reality and the facts that are given to him. So he has all these faithful servants in front of him, and he thinks they're conspiring against him. He thinks David's hiding out to kill him when rather he's the one seeking to kill David. He's completely disconnected from reality. But it's at this moment that Doeg pipes up and he says, I saw Ahimelech the priest help David. He gave him bread and he gave him a sword. And this is exactly what Saul's been waiting to hear. Like, see, evidence of conspiracy. People are out to get me. And so he calls Ahimelech the priest to come and explain, but he doesn't even get him, give him an opportunity to share his side before he's already presuming Ahimelech's guilt. This is the conspiracy mindset. And he says to him, Ahimelech, why are you conspiring against me with this David? Ahimelech tries to backtrack and explain, he lays out very clear facts. He says, who's more faithful to you than David? He's your own son-in-law. He was the captain of your bodyguard. If anybody's faithful to you, it's David. So if I'm going to help someone and think I'm helping you, Saul, it would be David. Why would anyone think I'm conspiring against you because I help David? That makes no sense. But again, Saul only accepts what already fits his fear. And he says to Himelech, surely you will die, you and all your family. Trouble here, though, he commands his men to kill Ahimelech and the priests, but none of them are willing to make a move. So Saul commands Doeg, you strike them down. And one by one, Doeg kills Ahimelech and 85 other priests. So awful, he also goes to Nob, the town of the priests, and he kills all of their families. It's a horrific massacre. Hard to take this in. Only one person, it says, escapes. His name's Abiathar. He's one of the sons of Ahimelech. And he runs to David and tells him what happened. And interestingly, David immediately takes responsibility. He says, this is my fault. When I was there that day, I saw Doeg, and I knew he was going to tell Saul. He takes responsibility. (laughs) Saul runs from the facts and hides. David enters in and takes responsibility. And he invites Abiathar to stay with him. This is a hard enough story to understand, this unbridled violence from Saul, but it becomes even more difficult when we realize that 1 Samuel wants us to see this moment as a fulfillment of God's word. This is challenging. 1 Samuel wants us to see this as a fulfillment of judgment that God has spoken previously. Hang with me here. If we go way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, do you remember these two priests named Hophni and Phinehas? They were called scoundrels because they took God's sacrifice lightly and they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They were using God's worship as a way to benefit themselves. And their father, Eli, who was in charge of the tabernacle, he does nothing to stop them because he's more in love with his own name and reputation and comfort than he is with challenging his sons for the sake of God's worship. So God speaks judgment against Eli and his family and says here in chapter 2, verse 32, 
hear this. It says, fellow Israelites, oh, sorry, I have this. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. I will strike down you and your priestly house. Very soon after this, we saw in 1 Samuel that Eli dies. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed in a battle. But what about this promise of judgment over the rest of his house and family? For 20 chapters, this just hangs in the air until this moment and massacre by Saul. And this is hard to understand because what Saul meant for evil, God is using as a judgment. How do we understand this? What's going on here? It's perplexing. I struggle with this. The ever-helpful commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, he says it this way. I think this is helpful to us. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Get that. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies, Saul here, only bring to pass God's word. I admit there's still mystery and questions that I have as I hear this. How can God use someone like Saul in this kind of wicked action to achieve his own purposes? Doesn't this make God complicit in evil? How do, how do we understand this? I say here that 1 Samuel is trying to teach us that evil will never be able to ultimately, ultimately accomplish its own ends, but will rebound and fall back in upon itself. It will only ever realize God's ultimate goal. So for instance, have you ever seen a boomerang that someone throws out? It seems like they launch it out and it's headed in one direction and is only ever going to go in that one direction. But because of the design of a boomerang, it slowly turns and revolves and make its, makes its way back to where it was thrown. It's something similar with evil. Someone may have one intent and do something that seems to be headed in one direction, that evil has its heyday and is in power, but what we see is that it will eventually turn and will fall in upon itself and defeat itself. This doesn't mean we allow evil. It doesn't mean we're okay with it. Certainly it doesn't mean we do evil, knowing that God might one day work it back to his ultimate purpose. Not at all. Rather, this story is simply meant to give us hope. It's meant to give us hope that even God's enemies cannot escape God's purposes. They cannot run away. And we see this hope here hinted at in 1 Samuel, but it comes to fruition in the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 33, this beautiful line, Peter is preaching to crowds after Jesus' death and his resurrection. And Peter is preaching to them about what has just happened. And hear what he says. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Then Peter says this incredible line. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you, get this, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
Do you see the tension here in this passage? Peter is saying, wicked people had one intent, to kill Jesus, and they crucified him. So there out goes the boomerang. It seems like they have one intent and one direction, and evil will succeed, and has succeeded. Jesus is crucified. But at the same time, Peter is saying this was also God's deliberate plan because he knew sin would make its way back around. This evil plan would rebound upon itself and would work for our salvation. What they meant for evil, God knew they're putting the righteous one to death. And they think they're celebrating in victory. They've achieved their ends, but God knows by this work, he's accomplishing salvation for you and I who are not righteous. So the righteous one dies in our place so that God can give us his grace and make us righteous so we can know him. This is the beauty of the gospel, but it's achieved because people thought they were accomplishing evil. But God brought that back around and says, no, no, I'm accomplishing my own plan, the redemption of the world. So take this hope here. Believe for Samuel is teaching us that even though evil may have its heyday at times, at the end of history, the ultimate plan of all things, we will see that evil was not able to accomplish a single one of its goals. All of it will rebound upon itself and we will see everything is only God's plan, that he has the complete victory. That's the hope that we have in scripture. So see God's provision of his presence, his faithfulness to us. See his provision for you in the details and the margins, but also in these hard moments of confusion and evil, recognize, yes, you also, evil, will rebound upon yourself, and God will have the complete victory. That's our hope. I'm going to invite the band back up. I want us to enter into worship, but invite you to consider these areas of provision. Again, God's presence and faithfulness his provision in the small details, his provision in his ultimate victory over evil. What are you needing to be encouraged by? Consider that in prayer with me. Jesus, we look to you. Thank you for these stories and for Samuel, your work in David's life and how that is a model for how you're looking to shape us. So God, I pray that you'd stir up these truths in our hearts that wouldn't just be ideas out there, but we would take them home to our own hearts, looking on your faithfulness that you most clearly show us in the death of Jesus. If you've gone to that extent to rescue us, you will not abandon us. If you experience that kind of darkness to bring us into your kingdom of light, you will not fail us in this dark valley we might be in now. So Jesus, reassure our hearts Teach us of your faithfulness in the small ways. We want to abide in you and delight in you right now. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.